Well, Ruby's looking warmer already, so we can pray. Heavenly Father, you made us, you love us, and you invite us to be in community with you. Lord Jesus, you rescued us, you made us holy, you brought us together in this church family. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words of Scripture. You guide the words of the message and you transform us. So, Lord God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. May it deepen our faith, comfort us and challenge us so that we might grow in our love for you and in our love for one another. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, you can see the title of the message this morning is Magnifying the Word of Our God. And uh, in case you've lost the place, we're in Numbers 20 on page 114. Now, if you were with us a fortnight ago, you'll remember that um, I introduced our series with a quotation from a book called God in the Wasteland by David Wells. And in his book, Dr. Wells very helpfully points out that 21st century Christianity has made God weightless. What he means by that is that whilst on the one hand the percentage of the world population that claims to be Christian is higher today than it's ever been before, on the other hand, many of those people are living as if God is not there. He is quite literally weightless in their lives. And that is the great problem that we're seeking to address in our series. I think it is worth saying that this problem isn't new. Uh, At least once in every generation, the Church has been forced to recognise that she has made God to be far too small. And uh, the normal pattern, historically, is that the situation continues to slide until one day God opens somebody's eyes to see the danger and then God uses that person to revive the church. Uh, This happened to a man called Cotton Mather. Uh, He was ministering in North America 300 years ago where the church had been in decline for quite some considerable time. But one day God opened Cotton Mather's eyes to see the problem and to see what needed to be done about it. And Cotton Mather started speaking about the importance of faithful preaching. And uh, in one of his sermons he made this very striking comment. He said this, quote, The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is, well, fill in the blank. What would you say? What do you think, he said? What is the great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher? Uh, Is it perhaps to comfort? Uh, Is it to educate? Is it to entertain? Some people think it is. Uh, Is it to keep the sermon short? Well, Cotton Mather didn't say any of those things. Cotton Mather said, 
The great design and intention of the office of the Christian preacher, now listen to this, is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. To restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. Throne, of course, is simply another word for rule. And uh, dominion, the word dominion, simply means authority. So, according to Cotton Mather, if the preacher's doing his job properly, he's going to be restoring the rule and authority of God in the lives of his people. Now, of course, that can never, never happen if our view of God is simply too small. So it's very appropriate, wasn't it, that we began last time by looking at Isaiah chapter 40, which is one of the classic texts on the greatness of God in the whole of the Bible. And uh, if you remember, what Isaiah 40 says is that contrary to public opinion, God is far, far greater than any of us can ever imagine. Whatever the greatest thing is that you can think of, God is infinitely greater. Now we simply must get hold of that if we're ever going to experience the the spiritual strength and the comfort that God is holding out to all his people. And I'm praying that this series will begin to do that for you. Now this morning we're building on what we said last time because the astonishing claim that the Bible makes is that the God who is infinitely greater than anything we can ever think of, who is utterly beyond us in every conceivable respect, this infinitely great God has actually condescended to speak to us. In fact, the whole of the Christian faith is grounded on that truth. And if we take that truth away, Christianity falls to the ground. And God's words, which are recorded for us, of course, in the pages of Scripture, teach us how to understand the world that he's made and how to live successfully in it. Now, of course, this takes us right to the heart of the problem of the weightlessness of God in the lives of so many professing Christians. Because, of course, in our culture, words are a massively devalued currency. Uh, People no longer consider the spoken word to be a reliable vehicle for conveying truth. Now, you know this. But, I mean, if you were to ask any lawyer, they will tell you that if their clients started using words truthfully, uh, the profession would disappear next week. Uh, There's no doubt also that the problem's getting worse. Uh, When I started working as a stockbroker in London, almost 40 years ago to this week actually, uh, the motto of the London Stock Exchange was, my word is my bond. And uh, in those days, literally millions of pounds used to change hands by a very simple verbal agreement with nothing written down. But that ideal, of course, has had to be scrapped a long time ago because there were far too many cases of people not keeping their word. 
Now you see, it is that kind of thing, isn't it, which has given rise to a kind of inbuilt suspicion about the Word of God. People assume that the Word of God is no different to the words of man. Now that, of course, is a huge category mistake. Setting aside the fact that this side of the fall, all human speech is tainted by sin, which of course it is, there are countless ways in which God's word is different to human speech. I've highlighted some of the most obvious ones on the back of the pink question sheet. It's not a complete list, of course, but I think it makes an important point. You might like to have a look at it. So firstly, Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. What's the point? Well, the point is that a a powerful human speaker like Donald Trump might be able to sway the opinion of millions of voters. But only God's word has the power to create something from nothing. Second, Isaiah 40, verse 8, says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And that's a very vivid way of saying that Your words and my words have a very short shelf life indeed. They might perhaps have some significance during our lifetime. And uh, if you turn out to be a great politician or a marvellous writer, perhaps for a few years beyond that. But God's word is timeless. It stands forever. Third, Numbers 23 verse 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfil? You see, you and I change our minds all the time, don't we, about a whole range of things. And when it comes to keeping our promises... Well, we all know our track record is unimpressive at best. But God, you see, never changes his mind. God says he's going to do something. He always does it. So, unlike human words, his word is absolutely trustworthy. And what about showing us how to live a truly fulfilling life? I mean, the world is full at the moment, isn't it, of all kinds of philosophies and different worldviews, promising so much. But do any of them actually deliver what they promise? Well, you know perfectly well they don't. But by contrast, the psalmist says to God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What does that mean? Well, it means that it shows us the right way to live for our good. No human word ever does that. And then lastly and most importantly, while all our words are either spoken or written, quickly forgotten, God's word became flesh. Now, just from those uh, few verses, I do hope you can see how foolish it is to put the word of God in the same category as the word of man. Rather, we've simply got to recognise that when we come to the word of God, we are dealing with something 
utterly unique, utterly beyond us. And it's a vehicle with unstoppable power to accomplish all of God's plans and purposes. So friends, you see, if God is not going to be weightless in your life and mine, we have got to learn to take God's word seriously. And if we really are the people of God, instead of minimising his word, which so many Christians do, either by not taking it seriously or by outright disobedience, well, we must rather be looking for ways to magnify the word of God in our lives. How do we do it? Numbers 20 shows us how. And there are two important lessons to learn. First, we magnify God's word by listening intentionally. Listening intentionally. Verses 1 to 5. Now, I hardly need to say this, but I'm sure you'd agree with me that we are the generation of poor listening. Uh, In the days before television, the experts say that ordinary people could listen to a speech lasting for an hour or more and uh, tell you afterwards what was said in some detail without writing notes. But today, of course, the multimedia assault on our minds means that the concentration span of the average person has collapsed to just a few minutes. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had the experience uh, where you're watching a programme on television and uh, just as it's finishing, somebody comes into the room and says, "Uh, that looks terribly interesting, what was it all about? And you suddenly realise you haven't got the slightest idea. Um, your mind has been thinking about something else altogether. It certainly happened to me. Uh, There I am, I've been staring at the screen, but you see, what I've seen and heard, I mean, it's completely passed me by. Now, that is what's happening in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, The incident recorded here takes place in the first month of the 40th year after the Exodus. Now, that is highly significant. Because I'm sure you'll remember that the reason Israel spent so long in the desert was because the generation that God rescued from Egypt repeatedly would not take God's word seriously. And so God responded in judgment by keeping them out of the promised land. But now here we are, four decades later, nearly all of the first generation has died. And the big question is this. Has the next generation learned the lesson? Instead of despising God's word, have they learned to trust God's promise to deliver them into the promised land? Will this generation trust God when they are under pressure? Now, in chapter 20, the pressure you'll notice comes from two directions. Uh, Firstly, one of the most respected leaders in Israel, Miriam, she dies, that's in verse 1. And that, of course, is a sign that um, all the leaders in Israel are getting rather ancient, rather doddery. And uh, people are asking, well, where will the new leaders come from? Uh, Are they going to be any good? But the more pressing issue is in verse 2, 
where there is a life-threatening water shortage. Well, we know all about that. Verse 2, Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition against Moses and Aaron. They quarrelled with Moses and said, If only we'd died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert? that we and our livestock should die here. Now, you see, if we only had Numbers chapter 20, we might perhaps sympathise with that reaction. But we don't. The point is that almost exactly the same thing had happened to Israel 40 years before. So keep one finger, please, in Numbers 20 and page back quickly to Exodus 17 on page 57. Exodus 17, page 57, the extreme, well, the right-hand column, right at the very bottom of the page. Exodus 17, I will read from verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now you see, in Exodus 17 we have the parents and grandparents of the people in Numbers 20 facing exactly the same crisis And there they are in Exodus 17 being miraculously rescued by God's grace. Now it is inconceivable, isn't it, that the people in Numbers 20 had not heard from their parents what God had done in Exodus 17. They'd heard it from their parents and their grandparents and they'd heard it from Moses many times. But you see, the question for them in Numbers 20 is essentially the same question for us this morning. Were they listening? Had they learned anything from it? Would they trust God's word now when they're facing precisely the same situation? Well, sadly, they didn't. But friends, can I say that if God is not going to be weightless in our lives, we have got to learn not to listen to the word of God in the same way that we listen to television. 
Too many people are doing that. So come back to Numbers 20 because our passage suggests three principles that we urgently need to apply to our own listening if we're not going to be defeated by every trial and test. Number one, we must learn to listen intelligently. God has given us a mind. A mind. And uh, our minds are designed to be nourished by God's word. Now in our passage in Numbers 20, Israel's number one failure was a failure of memory. Uh, they forgot what God had done during their parents' lifetime. They'd been told about it. They'd forgotten it. Now the application for us is that you and I need to know our Bibles sufficiently well to know what God is like, to know how he's acted in the past, to know what he has promised to do, and equally important, what he has not promised to do. Now that is not going to happen unless you and I are committed to a daily disciplined habit of careful Bible reading. And that is the starting point for intelligent listening to the Word of God. Number two, we must listen in community. See, God has never, never been in the business of dealing with a random collection of individuals. He's always been in the business of building a community. And it is therefore no accident that six times in Numbers chapter 20, God's people are described as a community, and three times as an assembly. Isn't that striking? See, the point is that God gives his word to people in community. So that in addition to our private studies, we're meant to hear it, think about it, and live by it together. Why? Well, the number one reason is accountability. See, when you and I are together in church, you know that I've heard the same message that you've heard. And you can hold me accountable for putting it into practice. I hope you'll do it nicely. Now, we're meant to be doing that for one another. Uh, It's the loving thing to do. It's the wise thing to do, but we're not doing it. It's a real challenge, this, for those Christians who think they can live the Christian life alone. These people might well be coming to church, but you see, they don't have meaningful relationships, even with the Christians sitting next to them. So they aren't listening in community today, and quite honestly, they never have been. And if that is you, my friend, God is speaking to you this morning through Numbers 20. Third, we must listen in humility. Did you notice how quick the people were in this chapter to blame Moses and Aaron for their difficult circumstances? Look at verse 5 with me. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. 
But you see, trials and tests always, always have a purpose in God's plan. We don't believe that. We think it's a mistake. But they always have a plan and a purpose. And God says elsewhere in the Old Testament that he was testing them in the desert to prepare them to live rightly in the promised land. Deuteronomy 8, 2-5, for your notes. But you see, the problem is that more often than not, you and I behave like Israel. And at the first sign that things aren't really going the way that we would like them to, we complain. We say, Lord, why have you given me this terrible job? Lord, why have you given me this unloving spouse? Why have you brought this terrible financial hardship upon us? Why should I go on believing? You see, when life gets hard, what happens is we forget what God has saved us from. Isn't that right? And what happens is we tend to look back on our former way of life before we were Christians through rose-tinted spectacles and we start behaving exactly like Israel and we form our very own back-to-Egypt committee. What we should be doing is reading God's word in humility, intelligently and in community, trusting God's promises, asking him to strengthen us through the test. So, if we are going to magnify the word of God, we must start by listening intentionally. But then there's a second lesson, which is that magnifying God's word means obeying completely. Obeying completely. Verses 6 to 13. Now this episode, of course, ends really badly for Moses because he stumbles at precisely this point. Come with me to verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, of course, Moses and Aaron didn't, did they? That must have been a bitter blow, don't you think? What went wrong? What did Moses do that was so very offensive to God? Well, let's uh, look at the story more closely. Uh, In the heat of the rebellion, uh, Moses and Aaron retreat to the entrance to the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord appears to them there and God's message couldn't be plainer, verse 8b. Verse 8b, God says, speak. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Now notice there's a pattern here we've seen before because the word of God has got two elements in it. 
Uh, there's a command. Speak to that rock. And there's a promise. It'll pour out its water. Now, of course, on the surface, the command sounds extremely strange to our ears. I don't suppose any of us are in the practice of speaking to Table Mountain. We would perfectly understand it if Israel's leaders were looking for something a trifle more practical, uh, like sending out search parties to look for water holes or uh, digging a borehole. I don't know whether you could do that sort of thing in those days. You wouldn't be surprised if they were looking for something like that. But think about it. Think about it. What is the perfect lesson for people who don't trust God's word? Well, the answer is that you give them an unmistakable demonstration of the power of that word. Do you see? And that's why God said to Moses, speak to that rock before their eyes. Because, you see, the point is that God wants his people to see with their eyes that God's word is the bridge between their desperate need and God's perfect provision. Because God's word is literally that powerful. Do you believe that? But Moses wrecked the lesson. First of all, in in sheer frustration, he deflected the glory away from God. Verse 10, have a look at it. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? You see, instead of helping them see that it's God who's going to provide the water so that their faith is built up, Moses effectively steals God's glory for himself. Must we do this? But then, of course, far worse. Instead of speaking to the rock, verse 11, Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice. Now you see, by doing that, he's not only disobeyed a direct command from God, but you see, he's deprived the people of making the vital connection between the word of God on the lips of God's prophet and the miracle of the life-saving water. Do you see? What an astonishing miracle it was. Because verse 11b says, water gushed out. Somebody's calculated that by this time Israel was a community of around 2 million people. And uh, if the livestock with them were going to be a sufficient source of food... Uh, to keep them alive, there had to be something like a million animals. And if all of them were going to have sufficient water each day during their stay at Kadesh, some clever chap has calculated that the flow of water from the rock would have to be around 1,600 gallons a second. Now that's not a trickle. Now can I say that our problem is that because we don't respect the word of God as we should, we actually don't believe that God's word has any real power. And the truth is we expect so little. 
We come to God with our prayers and we expect that if, well, if God's in a good mood, perhaps he might grant us a trickle of blessing. And yet, you see, the truth is that all the time, God wants to pour out so much blessing into our lives that it staggers the imagination. But the great question is, will we honour God by obeying his word completely, not just the convenient bits, completely, in every detail? Because, you see, the Bible's perspective is that to disrespect the word of God is to disrespect God himself. And it's because you and I don't always make that connection as clearly as we should, we actually shut ourselves off from so much of what God wants to give us. So here in the heat of the moment, Moses disobeyed the word of God and God shut him out of the land. Now we've got to see what that does not mean. It does not mean that Moses went unforgiven. Uh, In Deuteronomy 34 verse 10, after Moses has died, we're told that he was the greatest prophet of all. And of course in the New Testament we read, don't we, that Moses appeared alive and well, talking with Jesus and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we do know that all of Moses' sins were covered by the blood of Christ. But what I want you to see is that there were very real consequences for his sins in this life. And it's exactly the same for us. If we're Christians, the penalty for our sins has been paid in full by the blood of Christ. We have been forgiven. We will go to heaven. But you see, often our sins have painful consequences here and now. And like Moses, that sometimes means that we don't get to enjoy everything that God has for us in this life. So if we don't want God to be weightless in our lives, we have to learn to honour God as holy. Verse 13. And according to this passage, honouring God as holy means trusting that God's word of promise really is the perfect bridge between all of our needs and God's perfect provision. And the way that we demonstrate that we're trusting God's word is by obeying it completely. Have you learned that lesson yet? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you that your word is the bridge between all our needs and your gracious provision. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times when we have not believed that, 
when we have disrespected your word just as Moses did, often bringing painful consequences into our lives here on earth. For this side of the cross, we know that just as Moses was forgiven, we too are forgiven. And we rejoice in that forgiveness this morning and we ask for fresh grace to magnify your word in our lives by listening intentionally and obeying completely. And these things we ask in the name of the Word made flesh, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.